You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. PUTT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi everyone, I'm Monique Whitney, PUTT's Executive Director. Welcome to this special edition of the PUTTcast. We are days ahead of one of the most important Supreme Court cases for pharmacies and for patients. And I am so pleased and honored to have our two guests today join us to talk about Rutledge versus PCMA on October 6th, uh, what it is, why it matters, what we can expect from it. I'd like to welcome first John Vinson, who is the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Arkansas Pharmacists Association. Hi, John, welcome. Hey there, thanks for having me today. Thank you for being here. We cannot wait to jump into this topic. And I am also very pleased to have Greg Reibold from the Georgia Pharmacy Association. Greg is the General Counsel and Vice President of Public Policy. Hi, Greg, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, thrilled to be here and be a part of this uh, conversation with John and, and you. So appreciate it very much. Well, we're excited to, to talk about this, as I've said. I think I've said excited now like three or four times, but it is kind of a big deal. So, you know, for those, those of you who know Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, uh, for the last decade, we've been almost this, you know, sort of underground group of independent pharmacists who've been trying to get attention on the issue of pharmacy benefit manager abuse. And we have not by any means done this work alone. And I remember in the earlier days of my working with PUT, starting to hear rumblings of laws that were getting passed and big movement that was happening in Arkansas. And lo and behold, uh, one day something really big happened. Uh, John, what would be helpful, I think, to all of us listening. If you could just sort of take us back to, uh, first of all, just what is this case? What's it about? And how did we get here? This case is uh, probably, probably as a result of something that started in the 1960s, if you want to know the truth. But certainly for the last uh, 15 years all across the country, there have been state associations right in the middle of, of uh, advocating for their members and pharmacists in their state for fairness and contracting between uh, middlemen that um, decide what drugs are covered and what the reimbursement might look like for a pharmacy and a pharmacist in the community practice setting. You know, all 50 states have passed some kind of PBM reform or regulation. Some of those laws have been minor and some have been very comprehensive. In our specific state, our battle began in 2003 and um, there were some changes made over those years. And finally in 2015, I think was the first time we passed a law that was meaningful that had teeth in it. For example, that law called Act 900 of 2015, you know, one of the provisions in it defined PBMs that own their own pharmacies, paying themselves more than their competition as a deceptive trade practice act, as an example. And I think some of the things included in that bill were uh, enough to en entice them to sue the state of Arkansas because they knew that it would bring fairness and lower drug prices and bring more transparency to consumers and taxpayers. And that's what happened. That law was or that law was challenged by PCMA, who is the association that uh, represents PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers, as they have done in many other states uh, over the last uh, five to 10 years. And uh, that's, in a nutshell, what started it in our state related to Supreme Court. Uh, <clears throat> there were several actions along the way, uh, including 
uh, ruling in uh, Eastern District of Arkansas that then was challenged and appealed by both sides up to St. Louis at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And eventually, um, the case was petitioned by the Arkansas Attorney General, Leslie Rutledge, to the U.S. Supreme Court on the, the count of PBM contracts with pharmacies and employer-sponsored insurance and whether or not those are preempted by federal law or state law with ERISA, which is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, the state of Arkansas has been to the U.S. Supreme Court before um, several times, but this is the first time since 1836 that the state of Arkansas and the AG have successfully petitioned a case to be heard at the U.S. Supreme Court which is a testament not only for how rare it is to have a case heard before the U.S. Supreme Court, but also a testament to how um, important the question that's being asked is and how it impacts every single person in all 50 states plus D.C.s and territories. Is everybody sometime in their lifetime is most likely to need a prescription drug. You know, they're uh, very commonly used in just about every person sometime in their life. So uh, it's also a testament to um, many attorney generals have been fighting this industry in their states as, you know, 46 different attorney generals weighed in on the case. The U.S. Solicitor General weighed in on the case, which is not, uh, I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's not common that that happens, but it was asked for in this case. And the U.S. Solicitor General did weigh in, and we're uh, very excited to see what happens on October the 6th. I'm curious uh, what it is about this particular uh, case that, what is it that had Attorney General Rutledge take this on to the degree that she did? Because this, this is, our experience, I should say, in other states has been that uh, pharmacy issues are sometimes uh, you know, push down the agenda, even though it affects so many people, because as you just said, everybody at some point takes a prescription drug. So everyone is affected by this. But what is it do you think that had her really, you know, take this on and, and pick it up and run with it and then also have so many other attorney generals, you know, sign on and, and want to be part of this as well? Uh, I don't want to speak for the attorney general, but my opinion is that you know, this is a situation where she and her team genuine, genuinely believe that they are correct, that this law, uh, the states do have the right to regulate in this space, and I think they're just doing their job. I mean, they are, they, I, I do believe they understand this is a David versus Goliath situation um, with community pharmacists versus an industry that is consolidated and become vertically integrated and one that uses unfair uh, contracting terms, including, um, like we said in that original law, where they will own their own pharmacy and pay themselves more than their competition or, you know, the local brick and mortar pharmacies in Arkansas and our association certainly feels, I don't know about her office, but we feel like they do that on purpose to, um, you know, put downward pressure on those pharmacies to to get them to sell to the PBM or to, you know, move market share to the pharmacies they own. But I, I, I'm certain that they feel strong in their uh, legal opinions that the Eighth Circuit erred and that the Eastern District of Arkansas erred. And I think just the fact that the Supreme Court accepted the case, that there's a, a chance that the U.S. Supreme Court justices Will feel the same way. I'd love to hear Greg's thoughts on that, if, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, look, I, I think the, the big thing from my perspective, obviously, being in the industry and, and working on a lot of similar legislation, um, but also from a legal perspective, it's hard not to downplay, I think, you know, the enormity of the moment in, in certain ways. And I do think for that reason, you know, there's a palpable excitement nationwide. But really, you know, in certain ways, this is, uh, it's, it's like an unlikely legal drama, but it's a, it's a big one. And I, I don't want to say it's like, you know, the, the little train that could, but 
you, just for some context, and I may be going over some some ground, John, you already laid, but maybe with a slightly different perspective as, as somebody who's worked on it in other states versus boots on the ground in Arkansas. But first of all, it's no easy feat to pass a law, right? And, you know, that Arkansas passed this MAC pricing law, I think you said in, in 2015. And that was a time where, you know, a kind of a select handful of states were able to really start trying to get some, some traction on MAC pricing and get some enforcement. And, you know, I would say to my recollection, Arkansas, you know, th their law was probably about the strongest of the bunch that, that did pass. But, you know, the resistance at that time to pass a bill like that, you know, just in and of itself was no small feat. And then a testament, I think, to you know the Arkansas Association is, look, the political will to in, to enforce and to fight for enforcement has to be there, and you know to have laid that groundwork and and set forth those arguments to the point where the Arkansas Attorney General uh, Rutledge is was willing to fight the this to this extent is really j just a tremendous thing, right? It, not only do you have to be willing to enforce, then you have to be willing to litigate often to great expense. And then you have to be willing to appeal um, to the Eighth Circuit. And then beyond that, to seek cert to the Supreme Court. And getting Supreme Court cert granted is just an unlikely proposition, right? I mean, you're talking probably approximately, I don't know, 75 to 80 cases out of 8,000 petitions. So, you know, just, just an amazing thing. And then when you look at the coalition of attorney generals, and then on top of that, you have the U.S. Solicitor of Labor and the Solicitor General weighing in as well, all in favor of Arkansas's ability to enforce this law. And that's a, it's a pretty tremendous thing. And, you know, not only are they kind of fighting for the question presented, but, you know, the, some of their briefings are broader than that. And they speak to practices, particularly the state attorney generals of steering and the harm to patients and the impact on pharmacies and rural and inner city. So it, it's been just really, I, th I think, it, it unlikely, but, he, but here we are and, and Arkansas has led the way. And from another state's perspective, listen, this has huge ramifications because these Eighth Circuit decision or decisions have really empowered pharmacy benefit managers in other states to kind of take the position that, hey, listen, you can pass these laws, but in the ERISA market and particularly in the self-funded ERISA market, you know, it's expressly preempted by ERISA and we don't have to adhere to it, right? And so, you know, you work really hard to pass these laws. And I would say since 2015, there have been states, you know, Arkansas, uh, Louisiana, New York, um, you, you know, there's Georgia, there's been a lot of really neat things passed. But the question is, what is the scope of it? And what is the reach of it? And, you know, obviously, from a patient perspective and a pharmacy perspective, you want this to touch and protect as many lives as you can and as much of the market as you can. And so this, this case is uh, exciting for that reason. Let's just say that there is a dispute about whether the state law applies, applies to employer-sponsored plans or not, which is what this case is about. In the other plans where it clearly applied, they still ignored the law. I mean, they, there was a track history of complaints being made to the AG's office I mean, there's still an, there's an active investigation in our state about those complaints at the AG's office. You know, it's a separate topic for a separate day. But, you know, in 2018, they just blatantly ignored it, not just in those plans, but in all plans, which led to an even further broken market and additional regulation in 2018 and 2019 in Arkansas. In fact, Express Scripts was fined $50,000 last fall for just blatantly ignoring the law and not responding in the manner that the insurance commissioner asked them to respond in. So back to your question about why they're fighting so hard for this, um, that's their job is to enforce state laws. And we're super appreciative. Our AG and 46 other AGs and the U.S. Solicitor General are willing to go to bat and do that just that. I agree. I think it is too. And it's not that I think other attorneys general don't see what's happening but i think there's been something unique happening in arkansas as you said it's you know finds its roots actually years before this there's just there seems to be some either unique understanding or or combination of activities or or maybe all all these things together that's helping arkansas be the state to lead the way on this issue because 
you know, as you said a little while ago, it's pretty indisputable that the practices that pharmacy benefit managers engage in are, to put it kindly, anti-competitive. You know, they, we're talking about uh, organizations that first design the pharmacy benefits plan. First, they design it. Then they go and they negotiate what drugs are going to be on that formulary. And they do that negoti negotiation directly with the manufacturers. And uh, in exchange for that, they receive uh, what is kindly termed a rebate, but acts in, in every other way as a kind of kickback. They make money there. They don't necessarily pass on all of that savings, those negotiations that they say that they're doing on behalf of patients. And then they turn around and they pay the pharmacies so very often less than the cost of the drug while at the same time operating their own pharmacies. I, I manage quite from Phoenix, Arizona. And just so happens here in Phoenix, we three of the largest people in the facilities are housed here in addition to PBMs. And you can see it just just here in what's happening in the pharmacy and how such close proximity to these giants, the, the effect that it's had just locally and how that spreads out. So I, it, it's notable and, and really all of us are giving you a standing ovation <laughs> for having carried it this far. Because we don't we don't want to go into a world where we're all forced to get our guns. I was going to say I would be remiss if I didn't say, or I want to emphasize this, if it weren't for states like New York, District of Columbia, which is obviously not a state, but District of Columbia, Georgia, Oklahoma, Iowa, uh, New Mexico, I could go on and on and on. I don't want to leave somebody out, but this case isn't accepted without lots and lots of other states, plus, you know, organizations like... Um, NASPA, which you know brings the state associations together to discuss and learn from one another, and NCPA, who has you know supported significant financial resources and and also legal expertise, you know to help all of us. But you know, in recent years, organizing a lot of uh, communication efforts. So uh, I just want to say that I don't want the listeners to feel like there's something special about Arkansas that couldn't have happened in any other state. It just happens to be us. And we're glad to have all 50 states have our backs because our yeah. amicus brief that we put together, you know, had all 51 major state pharmacy associations plus our national partners all in a single brief. That in itself is an unbelievable feat. Yes. Yeah. It takes a nation, right? Or a nation of, pharmacists and organizations. It's, that's great. Uh, here's something I'd like to know. So, and I think other people would be interested in this too. So the whole concept of the, uh, the ERISA system, the ERISA, the ERISA plans, who are these plans? What are these plans? Who are the people who would be in a plan like this? And, and what's the, what's the scope of this in terms of all, of all the plans that are out there, who would be most affected by these, this kind of ruling? Yeah, great question. So in its simplest terms, it would be any health insurance plan that uses a PBM that is an employer-sponsored insurance plan. There are two major types of ERISA plans. One is a fully insured where the insurance company accepts all the risk, and another is a self-funded plan that is an employer-sponsored insurance plan where the employer itself takes on you know, either some or most of the risk, depending on how large they are. Uh, examples of ERISA-funded plans would be companies like J.B. Hunt, which is a trucking company here in Arkansas, uh, Walmart, which is, of course, the largest retailer, number one on the Fortune 500 list. Uh, pretty much any, any employer that's larger than 500 employees is likely to be a self-funded ERISA plan, but once again, ERISA really applies to any employer-sponsored insurance type. So we're really talking about a majority or a, a huge number of plans out there. Yeah, it could be as many as 30%. It does, 
you know, this case, I'll tell you what it's not about. This case is not directly about TRICARE, which is federally funded. You know, state employees fund, is, even though those are employees, because it accepts state funding and it's paid for by taxpayer dollars, that's not an ERISA plan. It's not about Medicare D, although the discussions that come out of the case could certainly influence policy changes in Congress and the Medicare D world but it's about employer-sponsored insurance. Yeah, and you know, I, I would note that if, and I think you'll see this in some of the briefing if one were so inclined, but I, I think some folks go back and add some context that, you know, initially ERISA was, was sort of there to, in certain ways to help protect uh, beneficiaries or, or patients in, in, in certain ways, beneficiaries probably a better word there. But you know, in this context, it's, it's being utilized you know, by PCMA aggressively you know, in an effort, you know, frankly, to avoid state laws and regulations, you know, many of which absolutely protect patients. And I think that that's well briefed, I, I would say. But a lot of the concept of ERISA in connection with benefits is in order to encourage employers or, or these large plans that administer benefits in 50, you know, in, in 50 states or multiple states, it's to assist with administration of benefits uniformly. And ERISA does have some fairly strong express preemption provisions. And then I don't want to get too legal. There's a savings clause for fully insured plans when you're dealing with insurance. And then there's a deemer clause that comes back and, and preempts self-funded. And the Supreme Court has been, I think, pretty careful in saying, hey, you can't have these, these infinite connections, right? Um, state laws can be preempted by ERISA if it, you know, if it's sort of has a connection to or a reference to a plan. But when you're talking about a connection to a reference, like it, you, it can't be infinite, right? And so oftentimes, and I think what parts of this case is about is ERISA is being construed to such an extent that, that it, you know, to almost a point of absurdity. And I think that that's, that's a point that, that is, is well briefed, again, I think by the attorney generals and, and then in particular by this, the solicitor of labor and the solicitor general. I know there are going to be pharmacists, patients, physicians, all kinds of folks who are going to be tuned in to the oral arguments on October 6th. And one of the things I would encourage people to do for homework, just to keep in context, as you're hearing the case or you hear, you know, news about the case after the oral arguments are over and eventually, you know, what the decision is, probably the most important thing to consider is if you look at you know, the actual brief for the petitioner, so the state of Arkansas is the petitioner, Leslie Rutledge, in her official capacity as the Arkansas Attorney General, they filed their brief for petitioner on February 24, 2020. And of course, it's in the Supreme Court docket online, which is 18-540, if you were to use your favorite search engine to find that. And in their petition, the question presented, and I'm not going to read it word for word, but I'm going to paraphrase, whether the Eighth Circuit, which is the appeals court, messed up or erred in holding that Arkansas state laws regulating PBMs drug reimbursement rates, which is similar to laws enacted by a substantial majority of states, is preempted by federal law under ERISA. So it's really about states' rights versus federal rights and the ability for states to regulate uh, the reimbursement rates between PBMs and and pharmacies. And one of my favorite lines in the in their uh, petitioner uh, brief is on page seven of that document, where they talk about the methods of calculating drug reimbursements by PBMs are rife with potential for abuse, both downstream and and upstream. And um, Probably my favorite line, and a discontented pharmacy in these contracts is left with a Hobson's choice, except either a significant number of unprofitable reimbursements or exit a vast PBM network that provides the vast majority of their revenue. In other words, take it or leave it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's wonderfully said, and it's so true. That's one of the things that in, we struggle with when, when trying to explain this dilemma to someone who isn't familiar with it, but maybe has the power to do something about it. Yeah, in other words, take it or leave it. That's brilliant. <laughs> a little while ago, we talked about uh, the outcome of the case and 
you know, that's obviously very important to the conversation we want to have today for a number of different reasons. But assuming that, let's just start with assuming that it went our way, in other words, the court ruled in our favor, then what exactly would that mean? To the best of your understanding, what, what would that mean for, for pharmacy, for patients, for plans? I think, you know, it ties back to the question presented that I discussed a minute ago, and I know Greg's going to weigh in here in a minute on, you know, how narrow or how broad it might be. You know, we're just speculating. But they're definitely going to look at the question of whether or not states can regulate these uh, reimbursement rates or the, con you know, the specifics in the contracts as it relates to reimbursements between PBMs and community pharmacies. You know, when you think about from a state's rights perspective, those pharmacies, of course, all of their employees are regulated under state law and they have to follow state regulations to be licensed and to have permits and they're accountable for any expenses that are incurred. You know, to comply with those regulations, they have to comply with, you know, any minimum wage standards or any required wages that they have to, you know, pay as an employees or, or taxes that they're required to pay as employers in the state. And, um, you know, when you're in a Hobson's Choice um, situation with contracting with, uh, with these large um, contracting entities that also own companies that directly compete with you, uh, the state, in my opinion, should have the right to uh, to regulate and set some guardrails, you know, for what that looks like to ensure patients don't lose access and don't lose uh, freedom of choice for the provider that they trust and have a relationship with. So long story short, if there was a ruling in the favor of the state of Arkansas, it would mean that an ERISA employer-sponsored insurance plans that use PBMs that states would have the ability to regulate, you know, back to the question presented with regard to drug reimbursement rates. Yeah, I, th I, I think that's extraordinarily well put. You know, look, and, and let me preface this with, I am no Supreme Court scholar, and there, there are those who, you know, that, that's what they do, right? But, you know, historically, this, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, is, you know, it often will, will tailor their decisions narrowly to the question presented. Um, I, I do think that when you read this question presented, absolutely, you know, if the case goes goes Arkansas's way, which 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 we hope and believe it will, you're going to see some some instant changes in terms of the scope of the commercial market that state MAC pricing and other laws dealing with with drug reimbursement rates. I, I think you're going to see some some swift change in that regard, and so I think that's an exciting thing. Again, I would also note that there are shades when you read some of the briefings of the state's attorney generals, as well as uh, U.S. Solicitor General and Labor. There, there's some there's some shadings in there that that you know. Look, in, in a perfect world, the decision's going to be broader. But I think you know, assuming it goes Arkansas's way, I certainly anticipate pharmacy benefit managers to construe the decision narrowly. Um, and so not necessarily an end of the rainbow situation. I believe that, that we're looking for the possibility of, you know, there'll, there'll be other fights in the future for sure, but boy, that's not to downplay what a significant win this would be. And the question presented, you know, I think John pointed this out. He certainly has to me and we've talked about it. But, you know, the question presented is certainly broader than just MAC pricing laws, right? It's dealing with the state's ability to regulate uh, PBM drug reimbursement rates. You know, either way, it's going to lead to some, I think, some interesting developments. And in terms of enforcement, so one of the concerns we're always dealing with in this industry is a state passes a law, it, it can be challenged if the federal government, you know, passes a law, and I'm not sure if that's even the right way to say that, if the Supreme Court rules mm -hmm. in favor of Arkansas. What, what do we the people boots on the ground out here need to be ready for in terms of helping to get our states in line and able to enforce the new ruling because I can't imagine that it would just be a situation of oh they ruled in favor it's all handled everything will go smoothly <laughs> I imagine it'll be probably the opposite I would I would say that it's you know there's no magic bullet or or immediate answer to that question, but I do think that the momentum is building in our favor 
you know, and if you do, if you use the uh, analogy of David versus Goliath that I might have said earlier, uh, I definitely think that um, the more attention, the more the curtains pulled back, the more the story is told, the more success we have, the more likely it is to be enforced. I know that there will certainly be, at least in our state, some immediate ramifications from it. I also think it's important, you know, since 2015, I mean, the National Committee of Insurance Legislators passed model PBM legislation to be shared with all states. They actually weighed in with an amicus brief supporting the state of Arkansas. Never thought I'd see that in my life. And now the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, NIAC, is working on similar model legislation that's even more, has even more teeth and more enforcement, at least in the first draft that's been released. And I don't know when it'll be you know, finalized, hopefully by the end of the year, but certainly in 2021, if not by the end of the year. And that'll help states to have arrows to go and um, put those guardrails on the road, you know, to promote a more fair market with, with enforcement, as you said. Money. And I, I, you know, I would add to that, I would say day one, things are looking very good for, uh, for John and, and Arkansas, obviously, if a decision goes that way, particularly with regard to that law. But there's a, and John, you may know this, I don't offhand, there's, there's a number of states with, you know, NAT pricing laws and other laws dealing with reimbursement for, for generics and, and some of the more evolved ones like Arkansas is now also dealing with, with, with reimbursement for brand name. Um, those states that have those laws, again, if, if, this, if this decision goes well for Arkansas, I think with regard to those uh, drug reimbursement legislation, we're going to, and, and as well as the attention it has with state's attorney generals, right? Georgia, for example, Attorney General Carr signed on to this amicus brief as well. And so these attorney generals are going to be watching really closely. This, th this case is a big deal. And so certainly with regard to states, drug reimbursement laws, I think you're going to see, hopefully, the states that have them, some swift change in terms of hopefully adherence, and if not adherence, then enforcement. And then for the states that don't have such, I think obviously that's going to be a probably priority number one for, for those states to start working towards that. But then, you know, the, things have evolved a lot since 2015, right? And, and a lot of states have enacted, you know, significant other laws too, some, some certainly dealing with, with drug reimbursement rates, if not directly um, or as directly. I think there's some indirect import. And so it'll be interesting, you know, what, what's, what's the scope of the decision? How will it play on some of these newer laws that have passed in other states? And what are some of the PBM's positions with regard to construing the, the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court? And again, my humble opinion is they're gonna look to construe it quite narrowly if they lose. And in your opinion, do you see this as an opportunity or as a the start of a precedent that would allow even uh, greater opportunity for regulation beyond just the pricing? Because, you, you know, they, they engage in a number of seriously questionable practices, which are, are harmful at several levels. Yeah. And so and, and I'm going to I'm going to take take sort of John's tact. I'm going to read one thing that I thought was, was just really interesting because I'm hoping that in a way it's foreshadowing. And this was from um, you know the California Attorney General and the other coalition, which which I don't remember how many, but John what was it over forty state attorneys? Yeah, forty six. Yeah, forty six. Yeah, and so I, I I like this a lot as well. And it says in recent years PBMs have used their market power to pay pharmacies unsustainably low reimbursement rates to diminish access to less profitable drugs, to restrict pharmacies from informing patients about lower cost generic options and to steer patients away from independent pharmacies and toward pharmacies owned by PBMs. These practices have contributed to increased drug prices and a wave of pharmacy closures, especially in rural inner city and other underserved areas, and have harmed patients by increasing the cost of healthcare and curtailing access to certain drugs. You know, if, if you like novels and you like foreshadowing, I like that, right? Because that, that goes, I think, well beyond just necessarily the question presented before the court. And so, look, there, there's, there's going to be work to do, absolutely. And, and we'll see how narrow the U.S. Supreme Court's holding is or how broad it is. And then there'll have to be certainly some assessment. And then we'll all go from there and see.
I would say, too, uh, you know, U.S. Congress absolutely has the right to regulate as well in these plans. And I think it's been convenient to say, well, we're not sure what the right answer is, and we're not sure, you know, whether it's a state or federal or, you know, we're not sure what the Supreme Court might say. You know, all these lawsuits um, that lead up to a Supreme Court case, and, you know, we're foreshadowing here because we don't know what the decision will be, but when we get feedback from the U.S. Supreme Court, I think that will help in conversations with congressional members, you know, that our pharmacists have relationships with, that our patients have relationships with to better understand what needs to be done federally versus at the state level. Absolutely. I think that's just an extraordinary point. And what that looks like, whether it's putting patient protections, you know, into ERISA or making clear that ERISA doesn't extend to these like crazy lengths to pharmacy benefit managers and their practices. There's absolutely work that can be done legislatively on the federal level in that regard too. I'm really glad you brought that point up. Yeah, I am too. And I, I can hear, and I know everyone listening to this will be able to hear that there's so many reasons to be hopeful that this could open up the door for some much needed change that would shift the balance of power back to, to patients and to providers. Is it safe to say that if it doesn't go the direction of Arkansas, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of PCMA, is it safe to say that things will remain the same? Uh, will we be set back greatly? I, I'm curious about what your thoughts are if it were to go the opposite direction. That's a terrible question. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In the interest of balanced questioning, I guess I would love to, I, I, it's not so much that I want you to predict the bad stuff, but just to give people a sense of uh, if it were not to go that way, what would happen? I feel like clarity is good no matter which way the decision goes, because back to my point a minute ago, it brings clarity to which specific place do you need to work on this, federally versus at the state. So win or lose, it brings that clarity to know how to attack the problem. The other thing is, is if the ruling went against the state of Arkansas, it goes against the state of Arkansas as it applies to this specific type of health plan. It doesn't throw out the law in its entirety and how it applies to um, other types of plans that absolutely are regulated under state law. Greg? Yeah, no. So, so I, I think that's a great point. Clarity is good, right? Obviously, we, we want to see this decision go Arkansas's way and, and we're hopeful that it will and, and think that it will. But if it doesn't, you know, in certain ways from a legal perspective, it, it, it provides a roadmap, right, of where is there work to do? And absolutely, federally, there's work to do. I would also note that these state laws will still stand for, for where the state can touch them, right? And so what is that? State plans, um, county plans, city plans, church plans, hopefully uh, commercial plans in the, in the fully insured market. So there's still a lot of market share you can get at. And we've seen, you know, and I'll give you an example, like copay clawbacks, and a lot of states have done good work there, and Georgia's one of them. And so prohibiting copay clawbacks, which is where a patient walks in and they pay a $50 copay, and, you know, the cash price of the drug, let's say, was, was, was $20, and so $30, the PBM is clawing back from the pharmacy into their pockets. The patient would have paid less if they didn't have insurance. And, you know, what we find is PBMs kind of aggressively take the position that, again, like in Georgia, state laws are preempted by ERISA. But nonetheless, when they have to adhere to it in a certain portion of the market, what we start to see sometimes is that it captures more than, than even they, you know, maybe it's because it gets harder for them to administrate benefits in, in the way they do that. But sometimes you can still make some changes and it can also lead to some neat Neat policy changes, right? Look at the work of gag clauses that states passed, and that ended up being something that President Trump signed into law. And so all of the work that the states are doing, I think we keep doing, right? And, and maybe there's some different angles as well. Uh, I'll give you an example. And again, the question presented is the question presented, but there's a lot out there that's still to be litigated. When PBMs vertically integrate and they own pharmacies, um, you know, the, the state typically has tremendous power over regulating First of all, not only issues of healthcare in states, which I think these briefs do an excellent job of setting forth, but in particular, states have tremendous power 
to regulate providers themselves. And to the extent a pharmacy benefit manager wants to vertically integrate and own a pharmacy, um, you know, does the pharmacy, you know, how attenuated do you get, right? I mean, what happens in the world if you've got pharmacies that are saying, hey, listen, we're going to adhere to state laws and regulations for these patients, but if it's a self-funded, you know, if I'm a pharmacist and it's a self-funded plan and the plan tells me I can do non-invasive heart surgery, I can, I can ignore state law, right? I mean, that's an absurd example, but, but, you know, there is a reach to ERISA. And so there's a lot more work I think that states can do that would, that would present, you know, significantly different angles and significantly different legal questions. That's really great. Really helpful. Thank you. Go ahead. I was, I was just going to say there's no finish lines here. You know, we, we think we're going to come out, Arkansas is going to come out victorious, but if not, the work continues. And, and to John's point, we'll have, I think, a lot more clarity and direction in terms of where that work needs to be and the things that we need to emphasize. But by no means, um, you know, for folks out there, by no means does, does the work stop, frankly, either way. I think to Greg's point about, I know he's a, uh... I've seen him speak at conferences and at one of the PUT conferences in Austin, Texas, about new angles and different ways of thinking. You know, the regulatory angle is certainly a big, big opportunity to promote fairness. But, you know, the saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. You know, I really commend a lot of these pharmacists around the country that are uh, starting their own health plans or having control of the decision-making upstream from the PBM so that they're calling the shots to promote a, a benefit that's fair for patients and providers rather than middlemen. So, you know, that's another really great opportunity outside of the regulatory environment to, you know, move our profession forward so that we can provide the care with the training we've received for a win-win for patients and providers. Yeah, I'd piggyback off that if I may. And again, you know, if you look at the work pharmacists have done nationwide, as, as well as some of the organizations, just even in opening eyes, right? Like I think, you know, Ohio and, and the work out in Ohio that they've done with spread pricing and, and you know, the work that, that Antonio and Eric have done in that regard as well, opens, opens a lot of eyes, right? And so now we're seeing sort of this demand for transparent pharmacy benefit managers and true pass-through contracts and, you know, pass-through pricing, pass-through rebates. And so a rising tide, and so this isn't, you know, all our eggs are, are never in one basket. And so, when, and so the, the, the work will continue in pharmacy just nationwide. If you look at the work in different states, uh, you know, the work that PUT does, there's never been more attention on this. And this is literally, as John said, David versus Goliath, right? I mean, these are, these are pharmacist providers who are on the front line and they're going up against some of the biggest companies on earth who engage in these practices such as steering and low reimbursements on just the grandest scale that's ever happened in healthcare. And so I know when folks are behind the counter, it, it's really dejecting and feels like, boy, maybe things never change. But when you look at you know, this case before the US Supreme Court and you look at the, uh, the attention to transparency and spread pricing and you know, all these problematic practices, you know, pharmacists are to, are to be commended because truly they have shaped change and garnered just immense attention, right? Think of all the issues that the Arkansas Attorney General has to deal with. And in you know, all of the number of issues that could be litigated, you know, she, she's going to the mat for, for pharmacy and pharmacists. And we're seeing other states, general assemblies that are just embracing pharmacists and the work they're doing for their patients. And to some extent, pharmacists, state representative in Georgia, David Knight says this a lot, right? Pharmacists are the canary in the coal mine, because what we're starting to see is other folks, right, oncologists and other specialty practice physicians are starting to see all of these same things too. And that's, I don't think we've talked about that, right? But you've got the American Medical Association and the AIDS Foundation signed, you know, you know weighing in on this case as well. So it really is, it's, it's an exciting time to be in pharmacy. That is so awesome. As you're talking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about like those great speeches that a, a general gives right before the troops go marching into war. <laughs> like I'm grabbing my sword, I'm ready to go. Uh, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call on both of you next time we've got to rally the troops. So, but that everything you're saying is so great. It's so so important and so 
inspiring. And I, I totally agree. You know, I'm not, I tell everybody, I'm not a pharmacist. I am a patient. I understand this so well from the patient's point of view. And the more that I have worked with uh, my beloved independent pharmacies across the country with you all, uh, the more I've come to appreciate pharmacists and their staff for the work that they do. And I've had uh, just recently, as you both know, the great privilege of working with the first pharmacist in the history of the FDA to be appointed a senior advisor to the FDA commissioner. And, you know, he's there, uh, you know, carving a pathway and, and really working to open up awareness at the highest, you know, level of what is happening with these massive pharmacy benefit managers, because you're right, they are at the top of the fortune 500. And it's trippy when you think about someone like a, a CVS Caremark or, or an OptumRx being right up there with Apple or Walmart or Amazon uh, <clears throat> and not being an organization that manufactures something, not being an organization that yeah. uh, provides a tangible good. You know, there's a reason why we call them the middlemen. So I think that the takeaway here would be that regardless of the outcome, although our intention, and we feel very strongly that it will go our way. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> Regardless of the outcome, we have come so far. There's so much to be proud about just to have gotten here, and there is more to do. This is a $500 billion industry we're going up against when you just, the top three PBMs in the country combined revenues greater than $500 billion. That's more than I make in That's, two years. <laughs> you need a raise. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is a half a trillion dollars. Which Walmart has similar revenue as the biggest retailer and number one on the Fortune 500. And of course, National Association of Chain Drugstores weighed in with an amicus. They can't deal with these folks either. I mean, they are really... Hobson's choice to all providers. It's true. It's absolutely true. So we're moving in on October 6th to this. It's a teleconference, right? There's, Putt is hosting a, a quote-unquote watch party, but I'm not actually sure if there is anything to watch. I certainly will all be listening. Do you have any idea about that, John, what it will look like? Yeah, I can make a comment about that. It will be, in fact, broadcast through telephone. Um, there will be a variety of ways to listen in via radio, via internet. I know that CNN and C-SPAN, you know, have some options on their website streaming uh, to hear the oral arguments. The, you know, if you were to Google or use your favorite search engine right now, you can see what some of those arguments might have looked like back in the spring when they had 10 teleconference Supreme Court oral arguments. One thing that's interesting is, you know, in live oral arguments where there may only be 50 members of the uh, public that are let in, this is going to be a situation where an entire nation of pharmacists and people who are interested in this case, patients, physicians, oncologists, you mentioned a minute ago, can listen in live. Um, they've changed up the format a little bit, like in you know, an ordinary circumstance, you know, the justices may ask questions at random and because they're all in different locations to have some order to it. One of the things you can expect is that the uh, chief justice, John Roberts Jr., he has asked that the uh, justices, you know, are allotted at minimum of two minutes each. And, and he could let them go longer than that, but they'll ask their questions in order of, of seniority. So Clarence Thomas, who's been on the Supreme Court bench longer than any of the others would be who you might hear from first. And interestingly, he he was famous for not asking any questions in recent years. And since they've moved to this uh, telephone conference style, he's been very interactive and in asking lots of questions. So we can't wait to see how it goes and um, encourage people to tune in. We're We're working with NCPA and NASPA and the American Pharmacists Association to do our own program. We'll probably have a pregame analysis that morning, you know, that'll launch probably 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern time with, with some guest speakers. Uh, there'll be the oral arguments themselves that last from 10 a.m. to approximately 
11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the 6th. They can go as long as an hour and 30 minutes, but they're scheduled for an hour. And then we'll probably be back on with post-game analysis uh, for anyone who would want to tune in. And the Attorney General herself, Leslie Rutledge, will give public comments uh, after the oral arguments are, are completed. And we'll do some analysis of what we heard and what we think it means. Oh, that's great. We, we would love to promote that. Uh, but, you know, we have to be different. Uh, when we kind of jokingly say around uh, the virtual office, if you will, that there's, there's no mixologist like a pharmacist. So just for fun, we have put together, for anyone who registers through PUT, uh, we have put together a fun little uh, Rutledge versus PCMA cocktail cookbook, if you will. <laughs> it's got, <laughs> got drinks named after every one of the justices. I, um, there, there's one named after Leslie Rutledge. It's, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, like I say, we're PUT. We, we have can, to be who we are. Can we get a drink named after John? I think we should get a drink named after John. <laughs> I shall oh. I shall float that in front of our oh. uh, resident bartender and also my right-hand woman, Shannon. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if I want a drink or a bobblehead doll. It would be something <laughs> else. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? They think this is going to be wonderful. Okay, so as people, it's the last question, and then uh, we'll, we'll begin to wrap up this really actually pretty fantastic conversation. What should people be listening for when they are listening to the arguments? What what advice or tips or thoughts do you have for anyone who's going to be tuning in and listening? I'm going to let Greg attack this one, see what he thinks as our attorney. Yeah. And, you know, look, there's always sort of this this great question of, of you know, is the line of questioning indicative of what the ruling is going to be? But I, I anticipate we're going to see some really good questions on this. Um, and, and I think that, that you're going to see questions coming in, in, in to both sides, frankly. Right. Um, but but I'd certainly be paying acute attention to the questions po that are posed to PCMA um, and obviously listening, listening intently you know, in terms of what their, what their response is. I would also add that the petitioner, Arkansas, will go first, and they'll, they'll be allotted at least 20 minutes, and then the U.S. Solicitor General will get part of the petitioner's time, and so U.S. Solicitor General will have up to 10 minutes to weigh in and be asked questions. Then you'll hear uh, the other side from PCMA, um, you know, and question back and forth, and then closing remarks from the petitioner at the very end. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I'm just, just certain personally interested in is sort of what, what their line of questioning is going to be and whether they have it with regard to PCMA and just really challenging them on if you base, sort if you accept their interpretation of sort of ERISA preemption, where does it stop? Right. And, and does that argument that was set forth really, really well by the United States as well as the state's attorney generals, you know, does that resonate with the justices and that they have a line of questioning on that, right? Where does it stop? There can't be this infinite, quote, connection um, to ERISA. You know, if, if you in, interpret that broadly, my, my God, right? You know, if you interpret reference to or connection with broadly, it, it can have no end and there's danger there. And so I'm hopeful to see some of the justices really challenge PCMA on that point and what the true reach of ERISA is and should be and force them to grapple with the fact that you know they are not themselves an ERISA plan they, they are a pharmacy benefits manager that are contracted with them so mm -hmm. it's going to be um, certainly fun to listen to the questions and then of course you know sort of sideline quarterback trying to figure out what are the import of the questions once they're asked and you know does that bode well does it not bode well and and that'll I think there'll be some fun conversations to have certainly yeah. uh, after that. It's also interesting that in different federal courts and different lawsuits, this was pointed out by the Arkansas AG, they've kind of tried to put themselves in a regulatory vacuum, yes. meaning when it's, when it's not convenient for them to be under ERISA, they argue that ERISA doesn't apply to them, that they're not a fiduciary, therefore they don't have to um, answer to the U.S. Department of Labor. So when they don't want to be regulated there, they argue it doesn't apply. But then when it's a state regulation, they argue that, well, we're preempted by ERISA and it doesn't apply at the state either. So I'll be fascinated to see how they would um, 
respond to a question like that. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, right? And you know, don't get mad at me for saying this, right? But from a legal perspective, you know, if you're them, how fantastic you've created a, you know, potentially you can create a vacuum where you're saying, hey, you can't hold us to the standard of an ERISA fiduciary on, on the federal side. And then you go to the states and you say, hey, ERISA, you can't touch us. And and boy, that sure that sure creates a tough puzzle, you know, in terms of reining in some of these practices. I'm, I'm, that's a great point to bring up, John. Yeah, I think so too. I there, Shannon and I often talk about this that you know there's this diabolical level of thinking that, uh, and I'm, and that's just the word. That's the only word I can think of for it that has led to an industry that has been able to make a half trillion in profits, or a half trillion in revenues, I should say, and yeah. be able to somehow ooze into every loophole and crack in the law and never be held to the the spirit and the intention for which these laws were set in the first place. So I agree. I, agree. I think this is going to be interesting and I can't wait to to hear what the judges have to say about that. Agreed. Hey, Greg, when do you think they'll, they'll announce their decision? You, you know, I, I was actually going to get ask you that that very question, frankly. Sure. Um, you know, I think with the attention that, that this case has had and the time they've, they've had to look at the briefing um, and, and the fact that, again, how often, how often do you see the U.S. Solicitor of Labor and Solicitor General weighing in? I'm, I'm sure hoping that we, get a, that, you know, that we get a decision fairly quickly after that. Yeah, we could know that day, we could, which I don't think that will happen, but it's possible. Um, or that week, I mean. Yeah. Uh, it, we could know, you know, by December, we could know by early spring or, win, you know, or late winter, but they have to have made a decision by June 30th of 2021 at the latest. I didn't so realize I that's it could a long window. I mean, yeah, just legally under normal circumstances, they typically have to make a decision by the end of the term, which is... Yeah. June 30th of 2021, but it certainly could be much earlier, depending on I say, the I wish. Say, is it normal circumstances? And let's let's hope for decision before Christmas. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, let's bring it. Let's bring yeah. it. <laughs> I agree. So, John, one of the things that I'm curious about is the preparation and the team that is representing Arkansas at the Supreme Court. Can you tell us a little bit of, about that? Yes, thanks for asking that. The uh, state of Arkansas is one of, not every state has this, but Arkansas does have a solicitor general in the Arkansas Attorney General's office. His name is Nick Brawny, and Nick will be the lead counsel arguing the case on behalf of the state of Arkansas. So look forward to seeing his name on the, on the good guys side of the, of the argument. And we also at the Arkansas Pharmacists Association, in partnership with our primary uh, partner at the national level, the National Community Pharmacists Association, uh, NCPA, along with APHA, NASPA, and 51 state uh, pharmacy and pharmacist associations, um, have incurred significant uh, legal expenses to, uh, pr to provide for two things. One, an amicus brief. To the U.S. Supreme Court, which we did submit as a friend of the court, you know, in support of the uh, state of Arkansas in this case, but also ongoing legal expertise and advice from an attorney or a group of attorneys out of uh, Washington, D.C. Um, their names are Howard Rubin and Rob Smith are the two um, attorneys that I think are the experts in the United States on these matters that wrote and drafted, I mean, certainly with input back from those folks that I mentioned a minute ago, our amicus brief, and they continue to represent us to provide information, keep us surprised of litigation that may be coming or is ongoing in other states. And we've established a uh, legal defense fund to fund that, both at the national and state level. And here at the state level for the state pharmacist associations, and by the way, we've had organizations, businesses, and individuals from all 50 states to help fund that. And we've been super appreciative, but if you're interested in supporting it, you can find that at ARRX.org 
slash LDF, which stands for Legal Defense Fund. So ARRX.org slash LDF to donate to that cause. And if, if I could just weigh in, you know, I, I, I talked earlier about what kind of an unlikely legal drama this has been and credit to the state of Arkansas, but also, you know, just tremendous credit to John and the Arkansas Pharmacy Association. And boy, there's, there's not a better cause to donate to than that legal defense fund because they, they've put forth, you know, along with their partners, uh, NCPA and others and NASPA, they've put forth a, a world-class legal argument and world-class legal arguments are expensive. So I think any, anything that, that we can do to help defray some of those costs is money well spent. Agreed, and, and to that end, uh, anyone who is registering for the watch party, shall we call it, the, the listen party for the case on October 6th, we will be including a link to be able to donate to the Arkansas Legal Defense Fund. So we uh, appreciate really anything anyone can do to help defray the cost because you're right, it, it is costly, but it is definitely money well spent and has brought us to where we are and that's just incredible. Well, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. John Vinson, Arkansas Pharmacists Association, Greg Reibel, Georgia Pharmacy Association. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your insight. And for everyone who's been listening today, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you and we love to hear your comments. So if you have a moment, please leave us a comment on our podcast page. Until then, we will wrap up and we'll see you next time on the podcast.